Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Psalm. We're going to be in the 19th Psalm. So if you have a paper Bible, congratulations. You know you're one of the few. But you can just take it, let it fall in half. You'll be somewhere in the Psalms, probably. Work your way to Psalm 19. If you've been following along, we've been doing kind of a longer Psalm series. And part of that scheduling and part of its joy on my part, I love being in the Psalms. I love kind of the meaning of them and the way that the meaning from them can get out of just kind of this one concept, this one page that you're reading and infect the world around you and be part of what you see as you go through your day. If we've been the last couple of psalms following sort of a gospel movement, we've been seeing that we don't worship how we should. We talked some about the confrontation God had with some of his worshipers based on their hearts as they came before him. We talked last week about repentance. We talked about this primary sort of repentant psalm, penitent psalm about King David and, and his repentance after this, you know, ghastly sin. And if you've been kind of following that movement, we, we finished last week by saying, in the words of Christ to the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. Now that's easier proclaimed than lived. I don't know how you're doing with that. I don't know how many of you even heard me say that and walked away with any kind of a commitment towards some new, I don't know, grit, determination, identification of sin in your life that you want to walk away from. But the Bible is clear. Those that are known by God are changed by God. Let me read you a little bit, not from Psalm 19 yet, but from 1 John. Well, this is Jesus' disciple that walked with him for his ministry and then was proclaiming him after he left and was writing these letters, this, this letter of 1 John, to the churches that were being planted as, as the ministry of the Word was going forward. And he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Identification, people that have believed, that have been adopted into his family. These things are written so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means a sacrifice that bears a God's wrath and turns it into favor. That was a, a concept that was conversant for people who are a part of the kind of worship that took place in ancient times. It was seen. It was understood. The human heart realized that something had to be paid for the sin that we've done against the gods that rule all things. Now, the true God, he, he traded on that same understanding that we all have, that there is something right and that we have broken its law. And then if you break that law, you got to pay. The Christian message, though, is that God paid that debt himself for you. So this fancy propitiation word is a, is a way of talking about Jesus Christ the righteous who is a sacrifice that took God's wrath from you and turned God's favor towards you. And not for ours only, but for also the sins of anybody in the whole world. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. It's present. But in him who keeps the word, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now I don't know what you do with that. Does anybody read that and go, yep, we're good. Let me take a minute to examine my life. Great, I'm who John was talking about. Well, no. I mean, it's a, it's a bummer, it's a downer. If you have even just kind of the, the, the smallest amount of self-awareness, and yet, you get into the Old Testament in places like Psalm 119, which if you read through the Psalms, you're going to notice there's one that kind of sticks out because it's so long. If you're just in a reading plan where you read like a psalm a day, the Psalm 119 day is a day because you've got to read this massive psalm. And as you're reading it, you realize the whole thing is a love poem to the law of God. If you are like me and you feel the guilt of hearing John's words, you want to hide from God's law. How is it that people in the Old Testament and David, murderer, adulterer, slash raper David, writes lengthy, complicated, beautiful poetry about his love for God's law? Do you see this giant gap that's missing in our understanding? Nope. Okay, let me say it again. Yeah, of course, you get it. Now, last night we understood that there is a difference in different cultures and like how you respond to things. You know, last night they were singing and they were worshiping and their worship overflowed into this beautiful rhythmic dancing. At Hope Church, the closest we get to that is Kelsey because she'll get a little back and forth going. <laughs> Most of us are kind of stiff in regular life, and so our version of worship is sort of a Frankensteinian kind of... <laughs> and that's okay. You're just taking steps from where you start, right? Do we have joy is really the answer. It's not how we express it. It's do we have it, and if we don't, where do we go to get it? How is it that David found joy in God's law? Well, Psalm 119 is, is a little beyond us, so let's go to Psalm 19. It's 100 less, and it also talks about God's law. It starts in verse 7 this way. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great 
great reward. I don't know if you're following what he's saying. The reason that he's so excited about the law is because of what the law does, what the law promises. If you were reading with me, he's saying about the law, testimony, precepts, concepts, fear, rules uh, of the Lord, that they promise life, wisdom, joy, enlightenment, something that endures forever, that it's perfectly righteous. Nothing in this world is perfectly righteous. Look at the way that we try to rule, rule ourselves, rule other people. Look at the way you try to parent. As your kids get older, there's going to be this moment where they, they give you the sort of accept clause for anything that you say. All right, guys, you ready? It's time to get ready for bed. Get all the way ready for bed. I need you to, to go up and brush your teeth. And they'll say, and you need us to get our waters, right? Okay, yes, also that. That's part of get ready for bed. Go, 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 go. They always have the accept clause. They always help you to realize that your law, it's got some amendments to it, right? There is no perfect rule, except for God's rule. Truly, actually, fully perfect, that it's desirable in the same way that gold or honey is desirable. Gold is useful. Gold is beautiful. Gold is valuable. Honey is useful. You don't necessarily trade in it. You eat it, and it's fantastic. It's lovely. We still eat honey. You think about all the millions of things that we've developed and kind of come up with over the years. We still put honey on our toast. Why? It's delicious. And he's comparing it, showing us that God's law is delicious. If you read through that, that series of one, two, threes, he, he says the same thing over and over again. The law is good because it produces this effect. He says that six times. And then the seventh, instead of saying that, he just bubbles over into this thing about how it's like gold and honey, that the value, that it promises good, but it's also of value and sweet in both its experience and its reward. Now, of course, if you're bummed out by the law of God, it's probably not because you think the law of God is bad. You can agree with the psalmist that the law of God is wonderful. The problem isn't that the law of God is bad. The problem is that you don't do the law of God. That system can be perfect. How many workout systems have you purchased and not done? When Rachel and I got married, I had the full DVD set of P90X. Do you know how many times I've done P90X? You're looking at me and thinking, like, probably a lot. Never. I've never actually finished P90X. The problem isn't P90X. The problem is Ben. The problem is not the law. The law can be as gorgeous as anything. But if we don't do it, what does it do for us? That's our big problem, and that's where I want us to start. That's where I want us to kind of tap into the solutions God has to this problem that we might feel as David felt. There is a gospel solution to this that you're just leaving on the table. That as people, we are just leaving on the table. Motivated by our desire for sin, daunted by the law in all of its perfection and beauty, fill in the blank. You're leaving money on the table. You need to start with the way that this psalm addresses the heart. 
So that hopefully this psalm helps us as a people to continue to to see the law as good and to go after it in the way that John says that we should. First thing I think we need to do is admit our aversion to the law. Admit our aversion. I chose the alliteration over clarity. Admit our aversion. It says in verses 12 to 13, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We are not hitting the standard that God's given in his law. David wrote the psalm, is not hitting the standard of God's law. He has an aversion to the law in the sense that he breaks it. He's aware enough of himself to say that even though he may not be aware in the moment of big giant things that he's doing that God hates, He's aware enough of his own heart and his own condition before God that he knows there's other stuff going on. That even if he's not committing big overt sins, he is still committing presumptuous hidden sins. That the way his brain works, the way his heart produces, there's no way that he is not breaking God's law all the time. A lot of times we think that the law of God is going to be wonderful because we're going to execute it. We're going to do it, and it's going to be great. David's very clear. That's not the case. If you really know you, and this is something you see all through the Scriptures, in the New Testament it talks about it especially in Romans. If you really know you, then to, to give you a rule is to incite you to break a rule. If I tell you, don't, and then fill in the blank, Unless there's a really clear reason why not, there's a little part of you that would love to break that rule. What is that? Man, I think this is one of the most clear proofs for the truth of Christianity is how perceptive it is about the human heart. When you really start to look, you'll see that you have what's called pride in Scripture. It's this idea that you really are the most important thing. And that the world that kind of exists around you should support that idea. And every time it doesn't, you feel this vast sort of what? Sadness, anger, fear, anxiety. And so you have to fill your life with all these things that help you to not feel so much. Fear, anger, sadness, anxiety. There's a better way. Something can be done The last verse of the psalm, and then we're going to circle back to the first part of the psalm, says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Man, I think people think the Old Testament is going to be the the law God and the New Testament is the mercy God. Read the psalms. God has always been merciful, and he is beginning... This, this, this psalmist is finishing, he's, he's putting his bow on top of his whole kind of um, thought, his whole kind of um, examination of the law of God with calling God his rock and his redeemer. He knows that the meditation of his heart, that the words of his mouth are not sinless. 
But he is praying that they will be acceptable because the Lord is his rock and his redeemer. Let's dig into how the psalm talks about that redeemer. You got to admit that, that the law is something that you're not seeking out. There's an aversion in your heart to God's law. You're not anxiously scanning through Scripture looking for new things to do. But you should. How can you? How should you? Well, look to your love. That's how the psalmist ends. He looks to the Lord, his rock, his redeemer. And it's how the psalmist begins. Let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. We're going to talk about the sun in just a second. But he starts by showing that everything around us all the time is proclaiming truths about God. If you look at the sky and you see the stars, and I don't know, it's just something we don't see a lot of here. We got kind of too much light pollution. You got to get away. And when we do get away, because the other side of all the light that we have in the city is we also live in a culture where a lot of us have like pull behinds and you guys go and camp. I'm not a camper. Maybe I'll get into it someday. I find that when I try to go camping, all I do is try to figure out how to make outside like the inside. And so you just have to wonder, like, why not just stay inside? (laughs) Well, okay, there's beauty there. I do get it. And the stars. When you really get away from the light pollution and you just see the stars, do you ponder the stars? Do they pour into you knowledge? They should. Charles Spurgeon, this old dead English preacher. But he says this, He who would guess at divine sublimity should gaze upward at the starry vault. He who would imagine infinity, infinity must peer into the boundless expanse. He who desires to see divine wisdom should consider the balancing of the orbs. He who would know divine, it says fidelity, faithfulness, must mark the regularity of the planetary motions. He who would attain some conceptions of divine power, greatness, majesty, must estimate the forces of attraction, the magnitude of the fixed stars, and the brightness of the whole celestial train. Do you see what he did? Flowery language. But he is taking time to see in the stars evidence of the God behind the stars. The things that he is observing in the celestial heavens is pouring into him knowledge of the one who made those things. We talked more than once about the poetry of the world, meaning that the world was created by a creator. That means that when you look at the world, you can see the fingerprints of the work behind the, the poetry, the, that's what that word actually means. If you go to the Greek, poieo just means to make. The creation, the making. He did it, and he did it with meaning. Why this infinite sort of expanse of all these massive things that are so far away with the forces that hold them together? Well, it's not less than him telling us about himself, these things. 
I don't know, Spurgeon was a pastor first. He's not an astronomer. But he was able to see these things or able to understand these things from brothers and sisters who were astronomers because he understood that there's something behind all of this that he sees. So many times we kind of absorb our culture's explanations for this stuff, which are descriptions of things seen via a scientific method. Love the scientific method. Pro-science. Anti-scienceism. Science is great. Thanks for the iPhone. Scienceism using the scientific method to try and evaluate stuff that it can never evaluate is foolish. And yet, we have a culture that does that constantly, and we, as Christians, God help us, absorb that same sort of conclusion. You can say, wow, when you look at the stars, but do you go further? Do you worship? There's a big difference saying, wow, when you see the stars and saying, thank you. See, a, a scientific method or, or a scienceism is an explanation of things that explains away massive pieces of those things that we all feel. If you look at the stars and see something big and somebody explains to you what it is or why it is without giving you a way to say, wow, then they just cut off a big piece of it and said, see, our explanation explains it. Well, no, it doesn't. You can't explain something by explaining away a giant piece of it. Lewis, he's talking about whether or not theology is is poetry. And, And in it, he talks about how Christian theology holds everything else. It's a worldview that actually contains all these other things. Where science-ism, and he'll say, I think just science here, but, but he means science-ism, taking the, the method of science and trying to use it to do all of these things that it can never do. Science-ism can't contain all of these things that we know to exist. Morality, love, beauty, fill in the blank. He says, Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and even the sub-Christian religions. We can talk about that whenever you want to. I'd love to. But the scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. (laughs) You need something beyond science to support the validity of the scientific method. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else, uh, because by it I see everything else. The stars are telling us something. The awe that you feel unless you try and put that out as quickly as possible as sort of vague explanations, the awe that you feel is telling you something. It's pouring out knowledge. And the psalm zooms in to something even more specific, as the revealed word does. It says in verses 4 through 6, their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them... He has set a tent for the sun. So he goes from the stars to our star, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, again, you can just read the psalm because it's your psalm for the day that you're reading and go, that's pretty. Whoop, on to the next thing. But they're not built that way. They're built for a pondering. They're built for a chewing. Whenever I eat beef jerky, 
Rachel is always watching me to see if I keep some of that and just keep chewing on it. She'll give me kind of a look, which means spit it or swallow, but you can't just keep (laughs) chewing the meat gum. On the Psalms, you got to keep chewing. Memorization is super helpful. You're not there yet? No problem. Put it on a note card. Put it in, take a screenshot of the app and so that you can put it as your background on your phone and slide over every now and again and just read it again and think. You got to ponder. You got to let this stuff simmer. When he's talking about the sun, he uses very specific ways for describing it. What is the meaning of the sun? He's saying that it's like a bridegroom. He's saying it's like a strong man. He's saying it runs with joy. He's saying it works through the whole of the world. He's saying that nothing is hidden from its rays. They both illuminate and heat. Why would he say that? What is he talking about? (laughs) Oh, he's able to look at the poetry of the world and he's able to see the meaning that's there. We can read the psalm and just try and do it like a, a Jewish rabbi and, and not admit the New Testament, and you're going to get all kinds of meaning and beauty there. But the Old Testament is always meant to be fulfilled by what takes place in Christ. And so why not allow the, the full revelation of Scripture to speak into every piece of Scripture? What do we know about Christ well, John, the same guy that wrote 1 John, wrote the Gospel of John. He starts off by talking about how Christ is the Word. The book of Hebrews talks about how Christ is the perfect revelation. He's the final revelation of God the Father. He is light. You read the Gospel of John, he talks about it. He calls himself the light of the world. He talks about himself as a groom. Certainly, John the Baptist talks about him that way. He talks about the joy of the best man because the best man gets to step aside and watch as the groom and the bride come together. The Apostle Paul talks about us and the Lord that way, that the church is like a bride and that the Lord is like a groom coming to his people. The Lord is described as having joy. He's the Lord of the dance. What's his first miracle? His first miracle was to turn gallons of water into the most exquisite wine at a wedding. (laughs) What's being said here? Oh, the sun. Every day when you see the sun, as it moves its way, as it goes on its course across the sky, you are seeing a representation. Yes, of course, it's just gas exploding and nuclear whatevers. But I'm telling you that the meaning behind it. Read a letter. Yeah, it's just ink on paper. Okay, but what is it saying? What is the Son saying? The Son is saying that God in all of His glory and beauty is dangerous and life-giving. And that as He moves across His course, He is bringing light and heat to the world. Do you see it? Do you love it? It's dangerous. you got to play by the right rules. I think I mentioned recently, I have to go to the dermatologist annually. you got to play by the right rules around this thing. But it's good. It's good. Oh, see the love of the Lord that is running towards you like a bridegroom running towards his bride. Again, Spurgeon, Jesus, like a son, dwells in the midst of revelation. He's tabernacling among men in all his brightness, rejoicing as the bridegroom of his church to reveal himself to men and like a champion to win unto himself renown. 
He makes a circuit of mercy, blessing the most remotest corners of the earth. And there are no seeking souls, however degraded and depraved, who shall be denied the comfortable warmth and benediction blessing of his love. Even death shall feel the power of his presence and resign the bodies of the saints. And this fallen earth shall be restored to its pristine glory. He's just doing what everybody's supposed to do as they read this stuff. Just see what it says. See what it means. Allow the poetry of it to hit you. You may have an aversion to his law, but if you love your Lord, then the law becomes something that's a servant to you. If you love your Lord, who set, who went down into death, in order that you might be redeemed, that propitiation thing we were talking about, you now are free from the law in its condemnation and able to learn from the law as it teaches you how to be with this son, how to be with this holiness, how to love what he loves and hate what he hates. You begin to follow your king. If I tell you that the Lord loves you and has forgiven you, whatever you do for the rest of your life, part of you will say, well, then I'm just going to go do whatever I want for the rest of my life. But that's not how love works. If you really understand and believe that the Lord loves you, loves you with abandon, loves you like Hosea going and getting Gomer out of the prostitution pit, that he loves you, your heart starts to melt. In this heat, your heart starts to melt. The law of God becomes a roadmap for buying flowers for the one that you love, for maybe not chewing on uh, beef jerky longer than would be appropriate, for finding what he hates, and even if your heart isn't wise enough to hate it yet, following his course. You begin to follow your king, confident in his love. You keep getting back up when you fall because you trust in his love, and you keep going. This is the message of the gospel, that God has loved you and died for you so that by faith you can receive this forgiveness and start to see your life change. If you've done that, if you've received that forgiveness then your life should be changing. You should love this law, this light and heat that's all over your life. Do you? Hey, if you don't, let me ask, is there a specific sin that you don't want to give up? If your soul is a house and you want to give God full reign to renovate, but, but there's one room that you don't really want him to touch, what's that room? If you have that one thing, and it's because you're just confident that God can't be more pleasurable than the pleasure you get from this, or you're just confident that you're never really going to stop anyway. So why try to feel the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of all of this kind of making the honest attempt to stop and then falling again? Well, no. You can stop. You can change. And as you follow your king, let me ask, if there's this one sin that you just won't quit, Here's a couple of C's. One, confess it. Confess it to the Lord, but confess it to people. Confess your sins one to another. Tell somebody else so that they can help you change. 
I confess sin to people at Hope Church. I found mercy. Try us. Give us the opportunity to believe what we say. When we say, hey, everybody here has one thing in common. We're all broken people who need God to put us back together. Our different backgrounds are not just religious backgrounds. They're sin backgrounds. We have loved people when they have confessed to us and it has led to going to of, of, um, uh, addiction treatment centers. We have loved people when they've confessed to us and it's led to jail time. Let us try to love you despite whatever this dark, nasty thing is that you don't want to confess. Confess it. Once you've confessed, if you'll confess, cut off your retreats. You want to change from the inside out and from the outside in. Stop yourself from having the opportunity. How can we help you do that? Commit to the Lord. When we talk about Christianity, we're talking about a thinking faith. A faith that reasons to a truth, agrees with that truth, but then has to hold to that truth every day. When you commit yourself to the Lord, when you commit yourself to the law that He has given, you're going to need to remind yourself daily, I use that word very specifically, of the mercies of God, of the love of God, of the goodness of His law. Let the sun, as it rises and sets, remind you daily of the blazing, beautiful, bright, warm, life-giving one who loves you and has come to get you. Commit, again, to remembering this goodness. And then pray with the psalmist, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, be our rock. We're a house that is shaking under a thousand storms outside of us, but also inside of us, Lord. Will you be a firm foundation that keeps us standing? Father, we are a people that are constantly breaking your law. In sin did our mothers conceive us, Lord. Will you be our redeemer? Will you let us see and understand what happened on the cross and not let it be twisted by the enemy or by that little piece of us that would love to continue our sin and keep gnawing on our own misery? And instead, Father, woo us away with your love. We pray that you would and that we would be a holy people for your glory. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.